I think I can roll with this. All right, let's get started then. Beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth, girth. Yo, welcome back to my summer lair. I am your host, Sam Yunin, and today I have Christopher Ward. He is a singer, songwriter, author, and one of the first much music VJs uh, who recently penned a book called Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music. And uh, we're going to be getting to all that. Oh, and he is also in the Awesome Powers Ming T. Awesome Powers fronted band Ming T. <laughs> do you guys still do that or is that kind of just still a uh, one-off and just kind of like that's done? The uh, Ming T. Well, it was kind of a two-off. Two-off, yeah. Yeah, out of the three movies, we were in one and three. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, Mike could make another movie and who knows, he might have to call upon his rock and roll stalwarts and you know, that's a call that I would answer. Yeah. Mike actually wrote the uh, introduction uh, for the book for uh, Is This Live? You've known Mike for many years now. He and I were in the Second City Touring Company together. Oh, man. Let's see. 19, like 82, 83, around there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, we we, we hung out a lot. Actually, he and Alana, Alana Miles, and I shared an apartment in the beach for a while. Oh, Wow. What was that kind of situation like? Was it um, uh, kind of goofy? Was it fun? Was it late nights? You mean at the apartment or in yeah. the burn company? Uh, yeah, it was a pretty creative time. You know, I was busy working, developing Alana's career, writing songs with her and for her. Mm-hmm. And um, I was also in the touring company. And then um, I left that the uh, Second City job and got hired by Much Music's John Martin, uh, to do a show called City Limits, which was the all-night video show that preceded much. Yeah, from midnight to 6 a.m. on Friday and yeah. Saturday nights. Nice shift, huh? It's crazy that you would get, but the <laughs> it's crazy that you would get like midnight to 6 a.m. That's one thing. But the other thing is just that it was like almost free reign, the way you describe it in the book. It's like, here's a few hours of television, go nuts. That never happens today now. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, unless you just sort of invent something of your own and put it up on the web. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's almost like you guys ruined it for <laughs> everybody else. That, well, sorry about that. <laughs> and, and the culture I mean, continued on too much. I mean, really, we were encouraged to just uh, get out there and do it by the seat of our pants. And, and, and I, I think that was really the, the joy and the, the charm of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. When you look back and when you read the the memories in the book from all the different VJs, including yourself, there there seems to also be though like an underlying I don't know, is desperation or maybe panic is the right word too, because it's like you said, you're flying by the seat of your pants and so there is no feedback. Like how how did you develop like feedback to know what was working or what was not working? There was no social media back then. Well, I mean you had a whole crew of people that you were working with. Um it's like I mean I'll quote Mike, what he used to say is he'd try to think of something you know, funny for a, a sketch or for an idea for a film. And he said, if I could make myself laugh, then I knew it was good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got, we got a lot of feedback in the form of letters. How charming, right? Mm-hmm. How, how archaic. Yeah. Um, so we did, we did have audience feedback to know what we were doing was good or not. Um, but also, it's just you're churning out so much television. Some of it's going to fall flat on its face. And actually, people love that. It's like watching improv theater. They love it when you you know, completely blow it, and then you got to figure out a way to get back on your feet. Mm-hmm. But, 
Yeah, it was it was loose to say the least, and we and we enjoyed that. So you saw it then more as a challenge than when you first get city limits, and it's like, here you go, midnight to six a.m. Go knock yourself out. You saw it as a challenge then to try and fill up all that time. Well, city limits. This will sound weird, but maybe because of the time of night it was on and everything else, we kind of had that feeling that nobody was really watching. I mean, it turns out. Subsequently, I found out that a lot of people were watching and that it made an impression on them. But at the time, mm -hmm. it was just, you know, we just go in. I mean, we're rolling videos, so it's not like we were on constantly for six hours or anything. But, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we'd have interviews, and then we started doing kind of wacky sketches based on, you know, some of the characters that I'd done at Second City. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty freewheeling. Uh, you know, I... I make it sound like it was haphazard. It wasn't. We, we thought about what we were doing. We, we planned things out and we talked about them. That said, when it's live TV, you know, you, you can't predict the, uh, the results exactly. Mm -hmm. And that kind of evolved, too, as the interviews would happen, too. Like you had the Bon Jovi kind of tearing the place apart was one of yeah. the earlier interviews looking for their video, right? I don't know if you've looked at it, but much, which was fantastic, Bell Media, that is, uh, helped build a, a hub on their website showing, I don't know, it's like 50 of the greatest moments from much, and they let me curate it. So that was really, really fun, and I was screening all that material for the book, so it was something that I was familiar with. But if your listeners haven't checked it out and they're at all nostalgic, mm -hmm. what was going on in those days, it's, a, it's just such a great way of sort of, as well as reading it in the book, actually seeing it, you know, in clip form on, on the uh, much site. We've almost gone full circle in a way in terms of interviews because interviews like the stuff you were doing with like Bon Jovi where they were like barbecuing and hanging out. Um, it's kind of now what's happening with a lot of late night television like carpool karaoke and things like that. A lot more interactive. It's not just sit down with two chairs and kind of go back and forth now. It's kind of gone full circle to what you guys were initially doing. Well, I mean, we did a hybrid of both and it partially depended on the act and what they were into. It's like, you know, if you had the, you know, crowded house or bare naked ladies coming in the door. Mm -hmm. I mean, you knew you could you could just throw anything at them, and if you didn't, they were going to throw something at you. So, if in terms of ideas, um, so it was kind of wide open what might happen. But there were also artists where you, you know, like when Leonard Cohen comes in, you're going to take a more conventional approach <laughs> and, and sit down and do a more serious and hopefully substantive interview, and that 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 was its own challenge, you know. And I guess some of that was influenced by your Second City uh, background then, right? Yeah, for sure. I had just come from about, you know, with a year and some months of working, you know, in the improv comedy world, which definitely sharpened my live action skills. I, I don't think I was ever a great improviser, but I learned a lot, you know? Yeah. What initially drew you to Second City then? You know, I was, I, I mean, I, I made records and played in bands and stuff. And um, the last band that I had just met with complete and utter disaster. I was, you know, in the middle of a tour in Western Canada that got canceled. And, you know, then I, there were all these lawsuits on the part of the production company. And I, I sort of came back to Toronto broke to lick my wounds. And, you know, I, I mean, I was, you know, like 30 and thinking, well, God, what, what am I going to do? I mean, I just hate this, this aspect of it. I love the creativity of music. And I was starting to develop Alana's career, so there was that creative outlet. But then beyond that, I kind of needed some fresh input. So, I mean, I did stuff like I took dance classes, and then I took improv classes at Second City. And then they came to me and said, 
hey, do you want to try out for the company? I thought, seriously? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, we do. So, you know, I auditioned and, and then miraculously was given the gig. And then Mike Myers talked about it in the introduction, how like when you guys would go on the road and doing the tour, the Second City Touring Company, you guys would be constantly kind of like listening to the show tapes, trying to improve, trying to see what was working with the crowd, trying to like work with the crowd, not pander to the crowd, just all that kind of stuff. And I guess those are some of the lessons you took away as well from like the Second City experience that you applied to much music, right? Well, Mike, um, yeah, he's a real student of comedy and theater and improvisational skills and all of that. And I mean, his work doesn't look academic, but he thinks about it. He really thinks about all aspects of it. I mean, he's like a real disciple of structure when it comes to movie making. And similarly, like I, I really examine what I do as a songwriter. Like I'm very aware sort of, you know, with each segment of a song, that it's moving the song forward and growing and developing in a way that um, is satisfying on some deeper level. So, you know, it's just, it's how you work. Some people don't work that way. Some people just want to fly by the seat of their pants in every respect. Like Steve Anthony was a perfect case. I could never roll the way Steve did. But he was fantastic. I mean, he was just the nuttiest stuff. I remember... <laughs> there was an interview with, um, I can't remember her name from uh, Blossom. Is it Miam? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's interviewing her. In the middle of the interview, without, you know, so much as how do you do, he jumps up out of his chair and runs at the window overlooking Queen Street, where there's a couple of, you know, on sort of innocent spectators watching, throws himself into the window, bounces off of it, lands like a thud on the ground, <laughs> picks himself up, runs back <laughs> down and continues the interview as if nothing happened. <laughs> and it's like, I would watch that and go, God. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was almost scary to, 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 as a viewer to watch that, never mind to participate in it. So I, I mean, although I had some wacky stuff that I did, I was way more buttoned down. Like, so you kind of talked about the energy and all, like you said, the wackiness. What was Toronto like too as a city? Was it were there a lot of bands and stuff coming at that time, or was it kind of like just because it was Canada? It was a little bit of a, I guess, cultural nomad. Well, I mean, if you look back, say to you know the early eighties, I mean, Canada was musically kind of a rock nation. Mm-hmm. And those were the bands, you know, like Triumph and Rush and april wine and then came lover boy and you know i mean that those that was the sort of foundation musically and that's a, this huge sweeping generalization forgive me for this but right around the time that much launched there was like an incredible explosion of really interesting and diverse acts and um you know look like somebody like jane sibbery came along or uh the parachute club um or platinum blonde 5440 Jan, Jan Arden. I mean, just all these really, really interesting um, artists who were carving their own path. Like, it used to be in the early days of the Canadian music industry, and by that I'm talking about, you know, like the late 60s and into the 70s, they wanted something that was sort of a replica of what was successful in the States. It's like, oh, you're Canada's answer to, you mm-hmm. know, David Cassidy, whatever. Yeah. But there came a point where that was not the case. 
and bands started having very distinctive identities, like, you know, the pursuit of happiness, for example. Um, and um, much celebrated that fact. And I think we gave them a nice forum to be able to find an audience really quickly. Like, they didn't have to go through the whole tour slog like artists had before. If they made a rock and video, we played it. It's surreal how much impact the videos had too back in the day. How it would instantly like you have a number of um, comments from bands and stuff like Loverboy, for example, who would talk about how much impact immediately the videos would have and catapult them. Corey Hart was another big one. The sunglasses at night video. It would just instantly transform their career. It's surreal how like quickly that would have such an impact. Yeah, it was. I mean, I don't think we even necessarily realized that at the start but um it quickly became apparent that, that we were participating in something that was bigger than both of us including the artist and the, and the network and it was fantastic to be part of that not that you felt a swagger like oh look at the power we've got it wasn't like that mm -hmm. because, you know we felt a sense of responsibility the viewers like so many of the people working there were really young I mean, a lot of them were you know pretty close to the age of a lot of the viewers and they still were absolutely passionate. Like we, when we had the programming meetings to decide what went to air and what rotation things went in, man, it was just like a blood sport in that room <laughs> yeah. all day, mm -hmm. screening stuff and fighting over it. But that's good. Mm -hmm. that's, that that means that passion is being brought to the process. And we did not, you know, sort of kowtow to what the labels were pushing us to play at all. I mean, we did, we weren't like. You know, belligerent about it, but we we carved our own path, and I'm I'm proud of that. Yeah, it's it's very hard. That's another thing too. Like you are kind of free from that influence in a way. The whole like payola or like you have to kind of quote unquote play this or whatever. There was you were allowed to almost like run on your own taste in a way and just discover or push right. the certain bands that you kind of were championing. Well, remember we didn't have any competition in the you know the the, the vein of what we were doing. You know to think okay. The road is clear. Start driving, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, Moses, I think, was the only kind of edict he gave you was just don't be like the CBC. <laughs> well, that was what somebody said. I mean, you know, arguably he would have given us more direction than that. But, you know, he, I think what he did is he hired well. He was very, very involved in the hiring process of every single person that went to air. He looked upon himself as more of like a casting director. And he tried to choose, in some cases, unusual people. I mean, I think when they launched Mudge, the first two VJs were myself and J.D. Roberts. And those, relatively speaking, were pretty safe choices. Both of us had you know, put in our time in the music business. We knew what we were talking about. We had on-camera experience. So you weren't, like, throwing us into the fire. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, when they hired people like Erica... You know, she was she was brand spanking new to that kind of a scene, and she had to grow up in public, and that's challenging. But she did it, and she succeeded. And I think um, she created a link with viewers that you know someone like JD and myself maybe couldn't because she was like a representative. She was like one of them on air. Did you ever feel that pressure too, as well, like in terms of being a representative, especially when you're doing interviews? Because, you, like, mm -hmm. again, there was no social media. So you're, like, as a VJ, you're the only, quote-unquote, connection that people have or the fans have with whoever it is that you're sitting down with. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good observation. Um, because, I, I mean, I think, for me, 
when I went to, to sit down and do an interview, my first responsibility was to represent the fans of that artist and ask the things that those fans would want to know. Mm-hmm. Which is why when Erica sat down with Duran Duran and went like, okay, how do you guys meet girls? <laughs> yeah. As frivolous as that may seem, that's exactly what people wanted to know. But they, that's why, you know, they would give that interview to, to Erica. Um, but, you know, if I'm talking to Peter Gabriel, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so his fans are dedicated. They, they are knowledgeable. They're, you know, really bright people, super engaged. And I need to, you know, i got to bring my best game here. And the other half of the equation for me was to try to use my own curiosity. Because if you, if you just sit there in an interview and sort of, as you know, scan your eye down to the next question on the page, mm-hmm. um, there's a static quality to the interview. Yeah. It just sort of stop, start, stop, start. Whereas if you have a conversation with somebody and you're willing to, to take the risk of letting that conversation go where it wants to go and then maybe peter out or maybe develop into something completely unexpected, you're going to have better interviews. How was the process to do research? Because it's like, again, there's no internet, there's no nothing like that. So yeah. it's a totally different, like, you must have just, like, dig up, I guess, a couple of Rolling Stone interviews or something, right? That was basically it. I mean, we had this giant filing cabinet, this old metal BMS that was in the <laughs> studio, and it was alphabetized, and we, uh, you know, we would just go through it. So, you know, when the Jesus and Mary chain were coming in, I would just, steal the file and take it home and spend the whole night listening to their music and making notes and read all the things that I could and try to fashion an interview out of it. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was definitely, you know, less raw material to work with, but, but that's okay. You know, you, you find your way, particularly if you really genuinely love music and love what you're doing. That almost like, it, yeah, that I think is like a valid point because it's almost nowadays the music in a sense gets lost if that makes sense, where, like, it's just more trying to, like, get the ratings or get the metrics or whatever for the interview. And so the actual music itself doesn't necessarily always get celebrated. And some of the artists have been around so much now that they just kind of do their answers by rote and then just kind of sleepwalk yeah. through the interview and then it's boxes or briefs and then they go home. Sammy, I think you hit it right on the head. And at the risk of sounding like, you know, the old, you kids get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say that, you know, the whole celebrity culture aspect of interviewing has, has really diminished the art. Um, but you still got to give the people what they want. And that's not to say that, you know, the Bon Jovi barbecue was like Dick Cavett, but it was, you know, <laughs> yeah. when, when there was an artist that sort of warranted a more detailed sort of discussion. And sometimes it was surprising who those people were. I mean, I remember interviewing Blackie Lawless from the band Wasp, and you think, oh, great, heavy metal band, you mm-hmm. know, lots of hair, lots of makeup, lots of, you know, cod pieces. But, I mean, he was an intellectual and a really thoughtful guy. And I remember interviewing Joey Ramone, and it was the same thing. This was a really deep sort of thinker and articulate and considered in his responses. And there was nothing by road about the way that he replied to my questions. And as a result, it was, like, for me, a really powerful and unexpected experience. And, and hopefully that was the same for the viewer. In the book, too, though, a lot of the artists kind of talk about how much they enjoyed the experience of coming to much, just unpredictability, the questions, the interviews, all of that. And I think yeah. <clears throat> that sometimes, too, is, it goes back to what you're saying about celebrity culture. 
some of that aspect is lost because it is just so structured and so right down to the minute. And so you don't have a lot of room for spontaneity or like, we're just going to find out when the movie comes out, who's in it, and then we're done. And that's kind of like it now, right? Well, you know, I mean, perfect example. I mean, I've done a whole whack of interviews surrounding the release of my book. But it's in talking with people like yourself um, where I get a chance to be more expansive. And I don't feel, oh boy, I better give this guy a little soundbite so that he can jump to the next moment and mm-hmm. the next pre-prepared question and get in and get out in, you know, two and a half minutes or whatever it is. Like, you have to know your medium. And that's why, you know, things like podcasts provide I think, a fantastic opportunity for people who want to go a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. It's like reading the news. I mean, you know, or watching the news. I mean, you can... You know, you can get the news cycle on CNN and see everything you need to know in 30 minutes, or you might go to PBS and, you know, or read the New York Times or whatever and go a little bit deeper into things. But it's all, you have to find your own curiosity as a, a, a viewer um, in order to do that. It's like when you grow up and you're finding the music that you love. What does Arcade Fire say? There's something like, um, the music divides us into tribes. I think that's the quote from one of their songs. Yeah from the suburbs. I love that record. But it's... Uh, it's a good record. True. It's like, it tells you um, who you are and what your interests are in some ways. And it's like, okay, well, how far are you going to go? Like, when I first heard artists that I loved, let's say Van Morrison, I was like a complete addict. Well, I wanted to know, who did he love? So, you know, at one point, he was like, well, Ray Charles. I'm like, oh, Ray Charles. Oh, okay, cool. So then I go down the Ray Charles path. And then at Ray Charles at one point, I hear an interview with him. And somebody says, well, who influenced you when you started? He was like, oh, it was Nat Cole. I, I was a Nat Cole impersonator when I started. I'm like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want to do that, if you want to find that stuff out, you can now. Yeah. <laughs> Things online. You can chase it all night long. And, you know, a lot of times we music lovers, that's exactly what we do. Or if you just want you know, the quick and dirty, when's the next tour, when's the next album, and, you know, who you're sleeping with, well, fine, you can have that too. That curiosity is, it's still alive in, in your work and your passion and all that kind of stuff. You, that fire still burns. Oh, God, yeah. How do you keep it I going? Mean, I, I try to bring it to whatever I do. You know, I mean, like, when, when I'm writing songs, I mean, I've been doing it a long time, so, you know, you could there's two ways of looking at that. You know, one person could say, oh, well, this guy's really experienced and really knows what he's doing and he's written some songs that I like so yeah let's get him to write or they could go well you know he's a, he's a geezer what does he know his time has passed you know what I mean he's, he's not relevant mm-hmm. anymore I mean it's like there's there's two ways of looking at everything so but it behooves you to when you show up to really show up to really bring your best to make sure you've always got an armload of ideas so, you know, I'm a great note taker. I'm always putting down ideas. And it could be ideas for songs. It could be ideas for books or just whatever. And, um, yeah, that's, but that's what I do. You, can, you know, being creative is trying to make something out of nothing and doing it every day. In terms of then the curiosity and in being creative, were you curious about some of your experiences that much and that was kind of what prompted the book or was it just a nostalgia? Or why do you kind of choose now to, to put this like down like memory lane tour together? Well, that's a good question because, you know, there's some elements of both. I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I worked with, and we always get together when I'm in Toronto, and we hang out. And invariably, we end up talking about those times and, 
certain things that happened and people and music and so on, and lots of laughs. And I, I just there was a point at which I went, you know, this is there's a story here. There's a really really good story here, and I'm a little nostalgia phobic. I, I don't like sort of wading in those you know rose colored waters. Like it's not moving things forward. Yeah, you'd almost rather put out a new album than a best of. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I kind of had to get past that. And I realized that, well, I've never done anything like chronicling a moment in time. And a moment that I, in, you know, particularly in retrospect, think was a significant one in the, in the history of the you know, Canadian music business. I thought, well, who better to do it? You know, I mean, J.D. and I were the first guys through the door. He's busy, you know, being the White House correspondent for Fox News. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I should do it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I just started talking to people. And you know, literally, I started recording. I would get together with my friends. And instead of just yakking it up over a couple of drinks, I would put my phone on the table and, and you know, hit I record. Was there anything that kind of surprised you as you kind of talked about all these memories and went back over all this stuff, or even just watching some of the old footage? Because you talked about going to the Bell Archives and just kind of watching I some of the footage. A long time in that basement. <laughs> yeah. Was it? Were you surprised at anything, or like shocked at anything? I mean, not shocked. I don't think because no, I mean, I remembered it, um, but there were things that I'd never seen before that were great. I there was one I'd never seen um, the Iggy Pop Intimate Interactive. Show, oh yeah, it's great. Which uh, which Simon Evans uh, put together, and it was amazing. I mean, it was just breathtakingly great live television. And when when he like crawls through the window with a guitar and stands there with this crowd surrounding him, and he's making up songs about being on the street in Toronto, and it was just. Uh, wow, I, I just never seen anything like that. And yeah, so things like that were pretty amazing. I'd never seen any, believe it or not, I had never seen the Christmas tree toss. Oh, serious? That's another like established tradition. It was an iconic uh, occasion. And, and I think it was because at the end of the year, um, I was so busy putting the fromage show together that I kind of <laughs> had my own fish to fry there. So. Mm-hmm. So I I uh, I didn't see them. I mean, I knew they did it. I knew that it would be funny, and people talked about it and so on. But then when I went back and looked at them, I mean, some of them were hilarious, and one of them was absolutely death-defying. I mean, and that one is, is actually on the the much hub uh, among those best of clips, and and you can see Steve's feet leave the ground, and his body hits the the barrier on the second floor, where you know he. He could have gone over the edge. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, only Steve, right? The only Steve. But, uh, that but should it, be his business card. It was amazing to see. So there were things that, you know, surprised and delighted. What about the fromages? Did they kind of hold up as well? Those were some great bits there. Like, anytime you can make hamburgers out of sicker cows, I'm always in. I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Well, I mean, first of all, I had a blast doing them. You know, it's one of those things. It was just, here's a chance to mock everything that we take seriously the other 364 days of the year. Yeah. So, I relished those moments. And, you know, we used to go through and screen 
all the worst videos that we could find. And it was a pretty funny session, as you can imagine, putting that show together. Yeah. And then it was just a question of, well, how ridiculous can we make it? Where can we find some new, you know, cheese dispensing emporium who'll be willing to put up with us for a couple of hours shooting? Yeah. Usually ended up being the St. Lawrence market. Those poor people, I don't think knew what on earth we were doing, but for whatever reason, they decided to allow us to do it. There's always a sucker. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of embarrassing, too. I mean, some of the stuff that I did was really puerile. Mm -hmm. But, you know, <laughs> what's, what are you going to do? As long as you get the laugh at the end of the day, right? Well, exactly. I mean, people would say to me, it's like, you know, people like Alan Frew were like, oh, God, I look back at those videos, and I went, oh, so I just, he said, it's so, like, skin-raising, inducing, like, embarrassing, just watching it's like looking at your high school yearbook and your bad hair. And, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of big hair in the book. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, they all had a perspective. Mm -hmm. Larry Gowan talked about it. He, he turns of fashion. He said, "Well, I, I said, did you make any criminal fashion choices?" And he, <laughs> I don't think I made a, a fashion choice that wasn't criminal. Oh, yeah. So, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Fromage just sits right in there. As things grew. Was it the VJs were influencing the artists or the kids were influencing the VJs? Because everything started to kind of grow and the fashion started to be a lot more conscious. I think you even talked about it in the book. Like it started to affect one another. Erica M was really kind of stylish too for a while. Mm. What was kind of, was it well, the kids hard, that were bringing the stuff or where was it coming from? Hard for me to say to what degree we might have influenced artists. I, don't, I actually don't think that we specifically did. I think the medium of music video and the opportunities that it provided, and, you know, the work that they could witness other artists all over the world doing, I mean, that was like a pool of ideas and inspirations that I'm sure was influential. I mean, you figure if you've been an artist in 1984, and suddenly there was this, you know, incredible fountain of brilliance, you know, you Mike, probably find a way to incorporate it into your work as well, I would think. Michael Jackson um, was like the pinnacle of that. Yeah, or, or you know, or, or Peter Gabriel. I mean, you know, look at the Sledgehammer video. I mean, even today, it's just, it's a joyful expression mm -hmm. of, you know, of something. But um, as, you know, as far as the viewers are concerned, I mean, we paid attention to what they said, for sure. I mean, you have to. If you don't, you're, you're living on an island. And, um, I mean, as I said at the beginning, it was you know, letters, but eventually, like, we started to go out into the field more, and we'd meet people, and uh, we'd hold events and so on, and, and then we'd the dance parties and things, so there was a lot of opportunity to interact with people, and, you know, just even who would show up when there was an artist being interviewed and, and would be clustered outside the window on Queen Street. It was almost like a first-hand measure of an artist's profile. Yeah. And around, yeah, I mean, it was just, like mayhem in the streets right i'm reminded when you're talking like there's a bowie quote in rolling stone magazine it, it always stuck out to me he said that it was a it's bowie so they were talking to him in the interview about how he's very forward in terms of fashion and very conscious and all this stuff and he's like i'm like every other rock star i'm very behind it's the kids who are very much ahead and we're just the mm -hmm. rock stars are the ones trying to catch up and keep up with the kids well i, I think i think i think what he's saying is true uh, and I think any any artist that, that still can keep their antennae up, I think it gets harder, though, the more successful you are, because you are, you know, just by 
by virtue of your own success, you're kind of sequestered a little bit. You're, you're inherently in a bubble. When you look at Madonna's fashion sense, I mean, there's a classic case of an artist who, you know, used um, image as a powerful way of driving her career forward. Yeah. Well, at the beginning, you know, she, she kind of looked like a thrift shop kid, right? And she, had, she was very adventurous and extremely creative in the way she put her looks together. But it was very, um, like for people watching, it was affordable. You know, you could go out and, you know, get some sort of lacy layers and crucifixes and, you know. The fishnet gloves. Tie and in the hair and the fishnet ripped stockings. I mean, you could put all of that together yourself. Mm-hmm. The fact is that she did it. Um, whether she was influenced by people that she saw in the clubs in New York where she was coming up, probably. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things do cycle around, but there comes a point at which, I mean, like Prince. I mean, Prince was, you know, had his own look for sure. Was he influenced by kids on the street? I don't know. What do you think? It's, it's a combination, I think, of what you're saying. I think it's partly because it's like you're in a bubble, so you're, you don't have as much access anymore you do obviously when you go to the shows and when you're hanging out at the concerts and stuff you can kind of see the kids a little bit but after a certain point i think once you're in that bubble then somebody like prince or michael jackson they kind of turn inward and then they just kind of develop their own their fashion sense is so off the radar in a sense just wearing heels wearing the military uniforms those kind of things that after a certain point i think they just go off on a tangent and i think it's just hard to go back to like jeans and a t-shirt like the rest of us does that make sense yeah uh, but also, I think they reach a point, too, particularly if it is an artist who is fashion forward like Bowie, where, you know, he, he's going to feel the onus with every cycle of his career to create something new. And maybe it's a hybrid of different things that already have been done combined with some street fashion. But it's not like he's going to be prowling the clubs in disguise. He is, I don't think, for, you know, the, the next thin white duke look or yeah. whatever it was the move for him you know and when Bowie was lucky in a way too because he, he i don't know how he did it but he somehow made his audience elastic enough so that they could like go from ziggy to thin white duke and so on whereas some of the other artists michael jackson for example he got kind of trapped in his own little icon his own kind of image and it, it was very hard for him to maneuver in a sense it's like when you kind of try and park a car in a really tight spot and he had a really nice car but it was a really tight spot <laughs> That's good. I mean, fame is a trap, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, is a trap. I mean, and it's it's one of your own design in some ways, but it very, very quickly takes on its own shape, and it's not something that you can necessarily control the you know the form of. Um, you know, when you're influential, I mean, Bowie. You know, to me, he just walked that line of somebody who looked like they went, okay, i got to come up with something new, versus somebody who's just followed their own natural curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes with Madonna, there's a feeling of it being a, a little contrived to me. Yeah, there's a little manipulation, I guess. Yeah, particularly in the latter stages of her career. But, my God, she, she worked it for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. But then it goes back again what you're saying with like Peter Gabriel, right? Some of those choices he made, like what the flower pot or head or whatever that thing was, like it's clearly that's not like mainstream in any way, shape, or form. I don't know. Like that's art for the sake of art in a way. And it's like, I'm going down this road. You guys want to come? I'm like, all right, let's go. 
Well, you know, he was a groundbreaker all along, mm-hmm. and he was very much the performance artist as well when he was with Genesis. Um, so he he had a built-in adventurous streak, and I think also these artists they collaborate. I mean, in the case of uh, Gabriel collaborating with uh, Stephen Johnson in the making of that video, you know, for like Madonna to collaborate with Jean-Paul Gaultier in creating those, you know conical bras and you know, some of the crazy stuff that she did. You know, there comes a time where, you know, your curiosity gets beyond where your imagination is and you want to you drink up other influence. It's the same musically. I mean, there's always people who are seekers who are going to other cultures and absorbing all of that influence, like somebody like Paul Simon going to South Africa and, and you know, coming back and producing Graceland. Amazing album. Mm. What about like I know I don't know other word to use, but like fame for like you as VJs. Did that kind of open up some doors or like creative doors or because you had all these relationships, especially you as a song singer songwriter. Like, was there more access to record companies, more artists to work with, things like that, or was it just like just kind of a non thing? Because it's not like MTV was really kind of pushing their VJs and trying to make them like celebrities in a sense. But much music had a kind of a different aesthetic, even though you are on TV. Yeah, I agree. I, it's hard for me to sort of shine the, the spotlight on myself and say what people thought of me. Um, I mean, people have said, even artists, like I talked to Mark Holmes, Platinum Blonde, it's like, oh, you guys are stars, don't kid yourself, you know? People cared what you thought, people cared what you wore, what you were interested in, what music you talked about. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, I guess we were tastemakers in some ways. Not influential, maybe, in the same way that artists are. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very powerful connection between an artist and their fans. But it's powerful coming through the television as well, though. That's why I think, because you guys were like, you guys were the only conduit we had, in a sense, right? Again, because there was no YouTube, no social media. It's like, if you want to see the new video from any band or, or see an interview or see the Iggy Pop something, whatever, that was it. Like, there wasn't a lot of, like, you know what I mean? Because other than that, it was just, like, newspapers, magazines, which were kind of, like, very sterile, didn't have that same energy. And radio was kind of hit and miss, too. And so television where well, you guys were all... it was live. I mean, it was just yeah. happening in front of your eyes and in sometimes very unexpected ways. So... <clears throat> we had that going for us, for sure. Um, yeah, I, it's hard, it's really, that's a hard one for me to analyze. I, 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 I think MTV, you're right, did set up their VJs to be stars. That was part of the idea. It's almost kind of an American-Canadian thing, too, <clears throat> in a way. A little bit, yeah. I mean, and you know, it's funny, I had a, a really interesting conversation with Laurie Brown, one of the most thoughtful interviews that I did with you know some of my former colleagues. I mean, she's a, just a brilliant woman, I think, and, and um, I, I feel you know, very close to her. I mean, we had a real affinity when we were working together, too. I think we looked at our job in a similar way, which was that, you know what, we got a great gig, but we're not the stars, and let's always remember that. Our job is to provide a conduit, as you say, an, an opportunity, an avenue for the artist to reach their fan and for the fan to learn the things they want to learn about their favorite artist. And for us to essentially just get out of the way. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, no offense to you, but I mean, we were always just coming 
for the mu- new music video or and like to see what or the interview or whatever it was, right? So no offense taken, that's what that's what it's all about. So yeah, it makes sense, but at the same time it's like people have their favorites. Like when I was talking to people about the book and stuff like that, like mm-hmm. it's we were talking we started talking about the, off the top about nostalgia and people would remember like some of the fromage things or remember Erica M and things like that. And they were like, Oh man, I remember that. I remember this, whatever. I remember the Iggy pop. Like there's things that kind of still resonate with people. And it's because of the personalities and the quirks and things that you, you guys brought as VJs. So there is definitely a connection. Yeah. And, and you're right. And the, and the particular style of broadcast has passed. So it's, you know, it, nostalgia is a pretty heady thing, when, when, especially when it's time to the glory years of your own life, you know, because <clears throat> as you're discovering, you know, the bands that are meaningful for you, yeah, and a lot of them stay meaningful. It's like if you were a kid when U2's first album came out, you very likely still love U2 and are interested in what they're doing next, you know? Mm-hmm. And then even still, too, like, it's also just amazing to just go back because... There is, a, I find that the, in the last little while too, the timing of your books has been really good because there has been kind of this resurgence of just going back to uh, much music and just kind of, there's almost like a mourning for what it's become in a sense. And it's like, there's a gap from what it used to be and how cool it used to be. It's almost like, it's like that, that wild party animal in like university. And then now it's just like driving a minivan or something and it's got spreadsheets and like it's a soccer dad or something. Like it's not as cool yeah, as if. How, but how pathetic would it be if the, if that person you know who is driving the SUV and taking the kids to soccer mm-hmm. um, was still a party animal at like fifty or whatever? Standing on the lawn at five in the morning in a toga with a you know bottle of Jack over their heads, yelling mm-hmm. at the top of their lungs, it would be a little lacking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. And it's a valid point. We do all have to grow up. And I mean, you can also see that journey too through the book, which is that like things became a little bit more structured, a little bit more regulated. And like there was a little bit more standards and cohesiveness to the whole thing as it kind of evolved. Well, you don't want to be an adolescent forever. You know, you, you have to, I don't know, you, you have to grow and, and, and you have to lead. Mm-hmm. Even if people sort of love the wackiness can't be wacky in the same way forever that's kind of sad but true and so you eventually left much music and continued songwriting and how is that going i still love writing songs you know i mean recently i've actually been writing for degrassi mm-hmm. talk about talk about long-standing institutions yeah one of one of their current characters is a songwriter and so they need some people to write for her, so I've been working with a couple of other people doing that, and that's been really, really fun. I'm just channeling my my inner teenage girl in order to do that. Uh, Max Martin does that really well. I think he worked with some of the Taylor Swift stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I think, there's an inner teenage girl in many singer songwriters, right? So it's <laughs> like <laughs> you just got to find it. I think that's the formula. Well, I have a daughter who just turned 21, so <clears throat> she's not a teenager anymore, but close enough that I just have to listen to what she's saying and make sure that I uh, capture it. Mm-hmm. The curiosity still applies as well to what you, you mentioned that, but it's like the curiosity still applies to singer songwriting. Like there's still like creative paths that you're trying to follow or certain notes that you're trying to chase. You know, it's always a product of what opportunities there are out there. You know, who, who calls you and says, Hey, you want to work on something? 
Um, I mean, I just got a call yesterday about a new German band. It's a duo, male-female uh, act. And it was, it's just really cool. I mean, there's sure, there's like references to uh, Eurythmics, but there's also maybe references to the Double X, that new band. And, um, you know, you just have to be able to absorb it all and stay fresh and, and stay in the moment as much as possible when you're in the writing room see where things are just naturally going and, and try to figure out what contribution you can make. In, in a way, it's not for me to drive any songwriting session. It's for the artists to do that because they're the ones that know who they are, what they're comfortable saying, and um, you know what stories they have to tell. And it's up to me to sort of help them tell those stories and birth those moments. We've almost then gone full circle to what you were saying about much music and doing interviews, because that's similar to what you were just saying. You just want to provide almost like a platform so that the serious artists can be serious and intellectual, and then the other ones, like Bare Naked Ladies, can come in and be all like goofy and fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think you're right. Thank you so much for taking some time and just like going down uh, memory lane. Um, I know for sure I'm not the only one. Like I enjoyed a lot of the Much Music days, and uh, it was cool to just talk and even just read the book. And just uh, the book is is this live inside the wild early years of Much Music, and um, it was neat just to hear the stories and see how something like an institution like that got built up. Moses obviously had a big influence on Canada Canadian television with City and much and all kinds of things. Did he ever, and he he just, he gave us such an incredible opportunity. And uh, I think we, for the the most part, I think we really took it and made the most of it. Mm -hmm. But thank you, Sammy. It was uh, wonderful speaking with you. Uh, I mean, it's it's great being able to get into things, you know, with a little more, more depth, and I really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you so much.